What the prophets are, are doing is they are out of their great love, out of God's great love that they're embodying of creation, they are meeting creation and saying, this aspect of, of the society is not supporting the flourishing of all the people. And that's intolerable to a God that loves all of creation, that, that some human beings would be thwarted in their ability to develop their potential and to flourish. And for the prophets, that was just intolerable. And so they named it, proclaimed it, and said, this cannot last, this is not sustainable. And at the same time, out of their great love, of God's great love, they could transcend the brokenness and the horror and envision an alternative future in which all could flourish. That was Rabbi Nahum Ward-Lev, author of the book that's just out this week called The Liberating Path of the Hebrew Prophets, Then and Now. And you're going to find out that Rabbi Nahum has this transcendent and beautiful picture of what the scriptures are doing and will continue to do when they speak to creation with a prophetic voice, which is infused with God's love and calling out that which is intolerable for human flourishing and painting an alternative worldview. So uh, if you love my conversations with Rabbi Allen, if you love human flourishing, you're going to love this conversation with Rabbi Nahum, and then you're going to want to go out and get his book, which is called The Liberating Path of the Hebrew Prophets Then and Now by Rabbi Nahum Ward-Lev. You can get the link on the show notes or you can get it anywhere you buy books. Enjoy the conversation, my friends. Well, hello there, Rabbi Nahum. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, I'm just delighted to be here, Steve. I'm really happy to be with you. Well, as I said, uh, I first got to know you just really recently through Rob Bell's podcast. And so I, I reached out because uh, I had so many more questions and you were kind enough uh, to, you know, to schedule this. So uh, I want to dive really right in. Uh, and so my first question, I know you've been, you have been studying with a group of about 20 people interfaith in something you call bait midrash and that's yeah. really as i understand it uh, sort of how this book came about in the first place but describe yeah. what that collection of people is who they are and what you do yeah it, it's a collection actually there were two bait midrash groups it's not just one because i'd let one go to write the book but there were two and there were a collection of 20 adults from multiple faiths, um, largely Jewish and Christian, um, some of no faith at all. And uh, we met or meet for two to two and a half hours uh, every week from September through June. And uh, Beit Midrash means house of exploration. And it's yes. the traditional rabbinic term for uh, a study community. And what I love about Beit Midrash, there are two things. One is that the text is the teacher. Yeah. But my, my job is to facilitate the relationship to the text, to teach good skills for reading text, to ask good questions, to create a sacred container uh, for the text to speak. And the second aspect about Beit Midrash that I so love is it's not purely academic, that we are learning for the goal of, transforming ourselves so that we can transform the world. Yes. And so we're always asking, we, we never leave it with what does the text say, 
we always move in to say, given that, what does it say into our lives and how do we want to live it into the world? Beautiful. And my understanding of Midrash uh, is that it's there, there's at least one of the assumptions is that, uh, you know, when God, when God brought God's word on Mount Sinai, that was not just one uh, point in time, but actually we can understand that as uh, an ongoing revelation. And so when we get together for study that there are um, the, 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 there is more to hear. Would you, would you agree with that? Disagree with that? Extrapolate you know, on that? Yeah, I, I love that notion that, that God is still speaking. You know, I, I, I parallel that with it in the Jewish mystical tradition. Uh, you know, creation is right now. You know, yes. the, the, the mystics uh, took Genesis literally about God speaking and said that God is singing the world into existence right now. And so, too, God is still is speaking Torah. And so Midrash is um, you know, reading the white of the text. Yes. If the black of the text is the, the literal meaning, what do the letters say? There's all kinds of hints and all kinds of allusions and all kinds of possibilities in the white of the text. And so Midrash is reading the white of the, the text. That's Midrash, the discipline of Midrash. Yes. Midrash is a little broader than that. It really has a spirit of adventure to it and the spirit of, of, of exploration, which is what, what, what the word means. And that's some, something I so much love about it. It makes it so fun and exciting. Like, who knows where this conversation is going to go? And it often goes to really great and vi vital places. Yes. And I, as I told you via email, um, our community here in Minneapolis has had the great privilege for the last eight or nine years to study in that way with a rabbi and then his son, and then he's trained, you know, many of us to, to do it in this way. And so I, I, I love the gathering of 12 to 20 people where we don't know, um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the text is going to say today. And you could study one, you know, a text one day and it would say one thing. And then the very next day in our experience, it would say something else, uh, saying, and, and I love it. I love it. Um, and so just like for the readers that might not be as familiar with Midrash, I know that one of the, you know, one of the fun explorations that the rabbis over the centuries have asked is why does Torah begin with the letter bait instead of Aleph? And what are some of your, I know that's a, like, it's a centuries old, question, but what are some of your um, wonderings and imaginings about that? Yeah, uh, wow, you, you know some good Torah there, Steve. So yeah, Aleph is the first letter of the Torah, yeah. and Beit is the second of, of, of the Hebrew, yeah. and, and, and A-B, and, and Beit is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You know, and, and um, there's so many midrashim. The one that comes to my mind now, which I, I think is also relevant to the book, which is um, in Hebrew, uh, every letter has a numerical value, and the number, the numerical value for bet is two. It's a mm. second letter. And indeed, the story of creation is all about God dividing things. You know, that God is uh, separating light from darkness, and then there's a ferment, the waters above and the waters below, and then the waters below are gathered, all of this. Then that God is, the, the one is creating multiplicity. Mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and w w why? 
because the function of creation is it's all about relationship. And we, we need to have you and me to have this conversation. Hmm. So the, so we are all one. We're all one in God, but God is creating multiplicity. And so the, the challenge of creation is that how do we dwell in this multiplicity with the awareness that we're all all one? And conversation, which is a, a, a key understanding of the book, you know, is, is the way. And I, I, in the book, I bring this beautiful midrash on Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, where God um, creates what the siach hasadeh. And siach um, is translated as, uh, as herbage, herbage, plants of the sadeh, of the field. But siach also means conversation. Mm. And rabbis bring this midrash that, that God had created a conversation. And all the trees and all the plants are in conversation with each other. The world is a conversation. So you need the two for there to be a conversation. That, that's one of the machines that I just, I just love. I love, I love that. I hadn't heard that. Uh, that is, that is beautiful. Uh, okay, so your book is called The Liberating Path of the Hebrew Prophets Then and Now. And you, you start with this gorgeous translation of God's name. I mean, that's like the, the introduction of the book. And wherever you use God in the book, you use this translation instead. I just find it so full of grace and so imaginative. Could you explain what it is and how you got there? Uh, yes, yes. So in the Bible, we have the word for God, often Elohim, and you actually have God's name. Like there's Steve yeah. and Nachum, yeah. and then there's God's name. And those God's name are represented by four Hebrew letters, Yud and He and Vav and He. And in the tradition, we say that we don't know the vowels for those letters, so we can't pronounce God's name, which is a way of saying that to, in the ancient world, to know someone's name was to know something about the essence about them. It wasn't simply a little tag that with the war on their chest, but said something profound about them. And the tradition is that God is so beyond, beyond, beyond that we can't get our mind anywhere near around the infinite dimensions of God. So we can't pronounce this name. And yet we, we need to be able to say it when we're reading the Torah. So the convention of the rabbis was to say the word Adonai, which means my Lord. Mm -hmm. And the reason the rabbis did that is that they were leaving, living under the domination of the Caesar, who presented himself as Lord. Right. And the rabbis set this up for whenever they were praying, they were saying, no, 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 no you're not yes. the Lord. Yes. God, Lord, this is my Lord. So they were needing to identify my Lord. Now, t today, uh, you know, we, we at least aspire, you know, to live in a democracy. And uh, we don't have the same uh, relationship with, with kings and lords as in the ancient world. So I find that the rabbinic pronunciation not helpful. Right. Um, and so uh, I'm looking for another way of, of, of thinking about yud heh vav -Hey, those four letters of God's name. If we take those four letters, they constitute the word to be in Hebrew in the past, present, and future. Hayah, ve'yeh. So somehow this name of God, yud heh vav -Hey, it has something to do with being that transcends time, being itself beyond time. 
so that's a, for me then open to think about how to name how to say this name and then i'm also moved by what god says to moses when when god appears to moses in the burning bush mm-hmm. and says you go and and confront pharaoh you know moses of course is quite intimidated <laughs> said, well, I, I need I need something with me. Tell me your name. That's going to be now. Tell me your name. And God says um, two things. God says, "Well, I'll, I will be with you." Yeah. And then God says, um, "My name is I. I will be what I will be. Yes. I will be." And so that says, "I will be with you. I'm with you, uh, of presence." And so I took the first part of being beyond time in the second round of presence and i um, translated uh, lord into living presence and so whenever lord came up in the bible in my book i i rendered as living presence i that was stunning to me and i i i love that that i will be what i will be past present future it's sort of a sort of a mischief like mischievous answer that, that that god gives to moses you know um we'll tell them this i will be what i will be and um so your living presence um speaks to me it speaks to me of today it speaks to me of mindfulness even and of yeah. um you know some different religious traditions start to come together with that definition which which really is compelling to me in in a day and age where i feel like there is so much uh, polarity, division, binary thinking, this or that, in or out, living presence yeah. is so inviting, um, no matter what your tradition. Um, and I yeah, find that. Yeah, the word God, um, people mm-hmm. often, well, do I believe in God? What is God? You know, uh, but um, do you have a sense in your life that there is a living presence? within your life and with all that is that is here right now mm-hmm. with us that's a, a different kind of question it is and what it does for me is it gets me out of my mind which is so this or that ego driven and into a different place you know it gets me into a mystery and into what if and into what well, do i you know it gets me it gets me questioning like do, do yeah. i sense the living presence in myself and also in the person that maybe i'm struggling with right now you know oh gosh um okay lots of more questions so um the liberating path of the hebrew prophets then and now so where does the flow of the prophetic stream um begin for you right yeah i like thank you for the question i like this term prophetic stream because it, it carries a sense of an energy that moves through creation mm-hmm. and is articulated by the Hebrew prophets in their day. But for me, it begins with creation itself. Yes. And, and I have a chapter in the book where I look at the six days of creation and a little bit of the second creation story in Genesis 2. And it, it appears to me like a, a, it, it's the same process of what the prophets do. I mean, what the prophets are, are doing is they are out of their great love, out of God's great love, that they're embodying of creation. They are meeting creation and saying, this aspect of, of this society is not supporting the flourishing of all the people. And that's intolerable to a God that loves all of creation, that, that some human beings would be 
thwarted in their ability to develop their potential and to flourish. And for the prophets, that was just intolerable. And so they named it, proclaimed it, and said, this cannot last. This is not sustainable. And at the same time, out of their great love, of God's great love, they could transcend the brokenness and the horror and envision an alternative future in which all could flourish. And I saw God acting in that prophetic way in the six days of creation, that God meets each day and names it and then releases its potential to be something more differentiated, more interdependent, and more conscious. Mm. So, for example, when God says, um, you know, let there, be, let there be light, I mean, first of all, that God does not just say, um, okay, light. God calls out, you know, so why is God calling out? I see this as God's activating energy, activating creation to transcend some limit and to be, as I say, more conscious, interdependent, differentiated. And so God says, let there be light, and then there's light and there's darkness. And then there's the firmament of the waters above and below. And then the third day, the waters are gathered together so that the, the, the dry land can appear. And then this becomes the basis for the further unfolding so that the presence of light on the first day becomes sun, moon, and stars on the fifth day. So if we imagine making two columns with the first three days in one column on the left and in the fourth, fifth, and sixth days opposite them on the right, and then we look along across the columns, we can see that the, that the potential of light through the first day is developed in the formation of the sun, moon, and the stars in the fourth day. And similarly, the waters above the sky and the waters below the seas, they, their potential to be birds and fish is released on the fifth day. Mm. So when God says on the fifth day, um, let, their, let the waters swarm forth with fish, God doesn't create fish. God releases the potential of waters yes. to fish. And it's dramatically said on the sixth day, when God creates the animals, God doesn't place little animals on the earth. God, in the, in the Hebrew, it's God exoduses. God brings, that the, the, the land brings forth the, the animals. Whoa. And these are agricultural people. They know how animals yeah. are. But this was the way of saying that God was meeting some limitation of flourishing and activating that, that potential to release itself into something more complex and more conscious, more interdependent, oh. just, as the, just the prophets. And so to think about that all creation of evolution itself, and by the way, in, in traditional Judaism, evolution is not a, a, a problem. The, right. the, 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 the stories in early Genesis have a sense of evolution. The evolution itself is the liberation journey of all of creation to become more complex and more independent and more conscious. It's to me that's it's uh, so powerful because often, as humans, we feel like we're all alone on this planet in in our struggles and in our desires to grow and to learn and to think of all of creation as an evolving liberation event, moving towards more complexity, more consciousness. I think welcomes us back home to the family of all of life. 
I love what you just said because I think it allows us to keep growing. Um, if at the very be, if within creation is the release of potential, uh, then there's no end. You know, like there's 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 no end to the voice of God speaking. There's no end to God creating. There's no end to our own human flourishing and evolving of consciousness. And I think you're right. I mean, that then welcomes um, mystery. And so like um, as, as you were talking about potential, I told you that I've studied with a rabbi. His name is Alan. And he calls, he calls, like he defines good, you know, the word tov that's over and over again in Genesis 1 by looking at day three of creation where the vegetation sprouts forth. So his definition of good is associated with day three. And, and his definition is of, of Tov is this, um, the actualization of the potential for life, because you get the seeds within the vegetation, when, that is buried in the earth by God when the earth brings it forth. Um, releasing more and more life, right? And 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 I, that's a parallel. I I feel like of of what you're saying about the releasing of potential. Yes, absolutely. And if you if we look at the uh, a biblical Hebrew lexicon for the meaning of the word tov, yeah, it does it does have good, but it it also has a, a meaning in the actual lexicon that's very much what. Rabbi Allen is um, working with it, it. The word "tov" can be translated as "vital," and so I like using yes. that word, "vital." You know that when God, you know, when I say when when God says this is "tov," is God saying, "Well, this is good" in, in terms of or what? I no, God is saying this is vital. This sings. This moves. This rocks. That's what God is saying with with, with keto. This this is flourishing. This is potential to unfold and. Unfold unfold and unfold. So that prophetic stream begins at the very beginning of creation. When God says, let there be, it's as if God is injecting this potential for unfolding. This is the God whose name is, I will be what I will be. God's also becoming. This is all, yes. all about Yes. God's also becoming. Oh, I, that is so freeing to me. Um, okay. One one other quick noticing, I think I so you 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 write about the journey of liberation, and maybe I'm getting way too ahead of where you're going. So stop me if if this is you know jumping too many buildings, but uh, with with the seasons, right? So uh, spring with Passover, summer with Shavuot, and fall with Sukkot, and and those are the sacred seasons, right? The Moedim, which that word moedim is also spoken in day four of creation, right? When the sun, moon, and stars are created, and also the the moedim, the sacred times. And so, when when those actual sacred seasons are created, it, is that sort of a hint back to day four? Oh, what a lovely, lovely question! You know, the root of moed moedim is plural moed. Yep. Is the word ed, which is witness. Mm. You know, so these are times for our witnessing to the vitality of creation, the unfolding of creation, the flourishing of of creation. Yeah, and and so the the thing about 
the sun and the moon and the stars on day four is that they move. Yes. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, normally you would have thought that the um, earth and the, the um, sea would be created on day four and some of the stuff would be created before them. But no, be, but what's been, been valued is the ability to move. You know, and so I think that sense of vital moving is present in, in day four. And what the, the pilgrimage holidays are about, as you said, Pesach and Sukkot and Shavuot, they're about moving. You know, and I, I think it's really, really important that for each of them in the Bible, they become pilgrimage holidays. They, be, they become the time to get back on that path and get moving again. You know, and I, I think that that really brings that sense of journey right into each of those Mm -hmm. Holidays. So the sun, moon, the stars are the first journeying creatures that can work. <laughs> the sun, moon, and stars are the first journeying creatures. Good Lord, that's good. Well, and that's so um, this, this idea of pilgrimage versus destination um, reminds me of something that you write, and, and, and that is... Uh, the children of Israel, it's not the journey to the promised land, you write, but the journey toward the promised land, that it's all about journey and, and pilgrimage and never about destination. Uh, say more about that, if you would, uh, or if you already have said as much as you have, I'm sure you have more, uh, but we can also move on. But, but, but I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very significant that the five books of Moses, the Torah, ends with the people still in the wilderness and Moses dying, you know, before they arrived at the promised land. And the, the um, redactors, the people who brought the Torah together, they, the, the book of Joshua, which is the, the next book when they enter the land, uh, existed. You know? yeah, yeah. They could have ended it with Joshua, right. but, they, but they didn't. And I, I think that that was to have the sense of it's not about getting there, it's about heading there. Mm. You know, and so what's important is the journey and the direction of the journey. You know, and so the journey, if we pick up that theme of creation, is towards ever more mutual relationship. That's where the journey is leading us towards. And there's always more growth in terms of more conscious shared, reciprocal, mutual, mutually advantageous relationship. And so that's the journey that all of creation is on, and that's the journey that we need to be on in our societies and in our families and our communities and in our own personal lives. Well, yes. One of your quotes about that, uh, which I'd love for you to expound on if you would, is you write, the biblical prophetic stream comes along to awaken our anguish, to lift up our yearnings, and to fuel our moral imagination. Speak to that as it relates to where we're journeying and why we need to keep journeying. Oh God, I, I, I forgot, I love that line. It's a great <laughs> line, it's great writing, and it's also just a great yeah. picture. Thank, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that that sentence began with anguish. Yes. I think and this is a lesson I learned from my great teacher, Walter Brueggemann, who mm -hmm. talks about the role of lamentation in the Bible. You know, we have the lamentation Psalms. We have um, 
Book of Lamentations and the role of grief and, and, and loss and things not being the way we had hoped that they would be is such an important part of that journey forward. In a way, realizing the limitations of the present moment begins in anguish and, mm. and we need to be willing to inhabit anguish mm. and inhabit grief. And I, I think that's why we need strong communities. I think that none of us alone, we're not built to handle anguish and handle and, and be with grief alone. We're meant to be with in community, be with our loved ones, to be with our family. And so it, it, the, the beginning of the movement of the prophetic stream is, uh, this is not working. Right. <laughs> this is limiting. I'm not all that I could be. This is size not all I could be. The people around who are suffering, there's lives that are thwarted and in prison and incarcerated. This is this is intolerable. And we mm. need to be willing to dwell in that. This is not to be accepted. This is intolerable. You know, so the prophetic stream comes to stir up that anguish in us. Yes. And, and then at the same time, to connect us to the wholeness in ourselves and in each other and all of creation, allows us to say, <clears throat> this is not all that can be. There can be something far more beautiful and sacred and life-giving than how we are living now. And I'm going to move myself and do what I can to move all of us in that direction. And that's the that's the movement of the prophetic stream. Yeah. Thank you for that hopeful holy satisfaction. That's Fa holy dissatisfaction. Yes, holy dissatisfaction. Uh and associated with hopeful vision, it seems like too. And I think there's a connection between if you're really gonna have a hopeful vision, it like on the one side, you you have to be serious about your lament and your anguish on, on the other side, or else the vision feels flimsy. Does that make sense? Yes, it sure does. That's the ballast that, that gives us some gravity and some traction to move forward. That's right. Right. And that's what, to me, as I'm reading your beautiful book, there is this, that's the balance that you do hold it. It's, it's very hopeful and joyful. And I mean, I can sort of see your smile as I'm reading the book, you know, like, um, but also there's a, there's a very serious, um, reckoning with some of the societal crises of the time, the political instability of the time of the prophets where, you know, these, these, uh, these landowners are now losing their land and, and the taxes are getting higher and higher and, and the empire is getting stronger and stronger. And the empire has co-opted their own language for God and, and put God on their side. And so here come the prophets saying, um, in your words, this, this empire will, will actually fall. Um, and you can see it coming, even though it doesn't feel like it. So I want to jump to um, what what are some of the anguish that you hear and see in our time, the societal crises, the, polit the political instability, and what are you seeing the prophets now saying to us? Yeah. Well, well there is so much anguish. Yes. You know, yes. You know, I live in uh, New Mexico 
and uh, we are so aware of all that's going on at our southern border and yes. the anguish of the immigrants, people seeking asylum on our, our southern border and the inhumane treatment that they suffer. Mm. Yeah. You know, and um, you know, the, the continued um, anguish of the presence of you know, racism in our society that mm. creates such a, uh, a terrible, uh, frightening, threatening context for people of, of color in our society in terms of making their way forward. You know, um, environmental degradation, global climate change. I take science seriously that we have a limited number of years to avert the worst of, of the catastrophe that, that can come. You know, mass, mass incarceration, more um, African-American men incarcerated today than were enslaved in 1860. Right. I mean, I, you know, we could, we could, we could go on and on. There's, you know, there's so much to, to, to grieve, you know, I, I at the end of the book I have a, a a little appendix with spiritual practices for prophetic action, and one of those practices is paying attention to what over time disturbs one, what disturbs you, disturbs me, mm-hmm. uh, and what fascinates you, and what, you know what fascinates me and. You know, my sense in my life is if I pay attention to those through lines of, you know, there's lots that's going on that, that is of anguish, but what's most disturbing and most fascinating to me is some issue so that I, I, I don't become overwhelmed. I can't take on all of them. I can just take on what it is that I'm called to. And I, I, I find what disturbs me and fascinates me as really helpful guide posts like Karen's on the path towards you know, where do I need to uh, to put, you know, my energy? In, in, in terms of, uh, of, of prophets and, you know, prophetic utterance, um, I've really been inspired by, um, you know, um, Reverend William Barber, Jr. Mm-hmm. Yep. And his um, Poor People's Campaign for Moral Revival and his sense of, of fusion politics. I mean, that man is deeply, deeply um, into Hebrew scriptures and Christian scriptures and into the love that is at the core of that. He's really picking up, I think, Martin Luther King's torch uh, about really placing love at the center. And, 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 and for me, I, I think there, there is a deeper, deeper understanding that in, in some way uh, we need to rebuild communities of caring and love. We need to seek Dr. King's beloved community and work for that. And so there's many, many different aspects of that that I, I, find, I find encouraging. In a book, I have numbers of examples of, of efforts that, that, that I, I call um, uh, social art, you know, you know, really being creative in, in, in a social arena towards uh, opportunities for, for more uh, flourishing. I love those two questions. There's so many. There's so much that you just said that was so beautiful. I love those two questions. What disturbs you and what fascinates you? It's sort of again these balancing questions of don't don't fall down 
too deeply in the hole of either one, you know, but hold them together. Um, where does your imagination take you and what disturbs you? What angers you? What, and those two things are probably connected. Um, I, one of the metaphors, and, and again, I mean, we, 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 we see it with the prophetic stream, but one of the metaphors I enjoy that you write about is the river, that the alternative worldview that the prophets are speaking of is like a river that over time cuts through mountainsides, the mountains. It, it takes time, but eventually it is, um, would you say the river, the prophetic river, is unstoppable? Is that going too far? No, I don't think it's going too far. I, I do think that it's unstoppable. I think that this process of creation uh, is you know, <laughs> a, a presence in creation that, that, that cannot be thwarted. Uh, what concerns me you know, in our present situation is you know, how much suffering will happen before we can move forward in a way that is going to allow for more flourishing, but that, but that the earth, the creation itself will ultimately move on and flourish and continue its great journey towards, you know, more rich relationship, mutual relationship. I, I have zero doubt. It, it, it's just trying to, participate in that in a way that, that, that uh, we can make the changes in our society and our world and the way we're living, that we can, avo avoid, we can avoid terrible suffering that seems to be you know, increasingly coming upon us. Yes, yes. Okay, uh, now home, I have, I have two more questions if you have time for them. Um, do you? Do, do, I know we're a yeah. little over time. Mm -hmm. um, in the book, you say you you set out with these three goals. They're, they were very good goals and very, very, you know, sort of succinct goals. But then I loved what you said. The book had its own goals. <laughs> you said the book wanted to do something else. Uh, do you remember writing this in the intro? Yeah, I do. I do. What, what was it that the book demanded of you? Yeah. You know, my, my initial goal was to present the Bible as I read it, the Hebrew scriptures as I read it, which is fundamentally about a liberation journey, and to really hold up all the liberation themes in the Bible, because I think they can be a great support for us today. And then when, in the Beit Midrash, we began reading the um, contemporary prophets, people like Martin Luther King, and mm -hmm. Abraham Joshua Heschel, mm -hmm. and Paulo Freire, and James Cohen, and Gustavo Gutierrez, and Bill Hooks, Grace Lee Boggs, um, they, were be, they were rooted, in, in many of them, in prophetic biblical themes, applying them to today. And so the book really asked me to go further than I thought in actually applying the prophetic insights specifically to today and, and identifying themes that would take us forward in, in, into today. So as an example, one theme was dialogue, which was really rich in the Bible and the prophets, and then is brought through, uh, especially in, in, in Paulo Freire and Grace and James Boggs and in Martin Buber, talks about, you know, the way forward is not a couple smart people coming together and figuring out how to do it and everybody following, 
but as an inclusive a conversation among people who want to find a way forward as possible that everybody's voice is needed. And so I really wanted to uh, apply that and, and, and gave examples in a book of, of efforts that are really opening up conversation and dialogue to see uh, uh, the way uh, the way forward. Yeah, and, and another theme that um, was really important to me was um, this theme that I saw in Eric Frum uh, that I think was also quite biblical, where, where Eric Fromm talks about the difference between faith in life and faith in power. And faith in power being uh, what, what makes life good is, I, is command and control. If I can control everything and I can predict everything and I can minimize uncertainty mm. and vanquish vulnerability, then life is good. And we, <laughs> say no more. And the, the, the alternative for Fromm is faith in life, mm. which is relational life, which is which involves vulnerability and uncertainty and exploration and adventure and the flow of life, you know, in and out and, 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 and all that. And, and it seemed to me that in many ways that, that our culture has held up faith and power as a good life. And so I really wanted to apply Fromm's faith in life to what it would mean into living forward into our society. So those are two examples among others of, of themes that came through the prophets that really asked me to say more about them in terms of the modern day. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I love it. It doesn't surprise me that a book like this about the liberating path of the Hebrew prophets then and now would call something from you, <laughs> you know, would, would be exacting, would, would, would say, no, let's do more. Um, there's something poetic about that. Um, and so thank you for heeding that call. Um, and so this book by Rabbi Nahum Ward-Levs called The Liberating Path of the Hebrew Prophets Then and Now, it's out, Orbis Books, you can get it wherever you buy books, Amazon or wherever. Um, Rabbi Nahum, uh, I, I know you enjoy speaking, traveling, leading studies. Are there, is there a good way for people to uh, see where you're going to be traveling or, um, you know, sort of bring you in to lead a study in their community? Um, are, there, are there ways that people can get in touch with you? Yes, yes. Thank you so much for asking, Steve. Yes, people can go to my website. It's rabbinahum.com, R-A-B-B-I-N-A-H-U-M.com. And um, on there, there, there's a list of upcoming events where I'll be teaching. And there's also my email if people would like to invite me to uh, their community, to their group. Um, they can email me and I'd be glad to respond. Well, I will put those, both of those, along with the link to buy the book on the show notes, on the show notes, so stevebeans.com slash show notes, or just write uh, wherever you're listening, whether it be iTunes or Podbean or Stitcher, um, it'll be, it should be right in the, right in the show notes. You can look that up and... Um, I, I encourage anyone who is is perhaps feeling the anguish of our times and but also is intrigued by the hopeful message that there is an alternative worldview that actually has been breaking forth and is breaking forth even now. Um, 
to to get this book and to engage with the way of study that Rabbi Nahum has done for so many years, um, it be, be, because I've personally found it to be expansive, inclusive, hopeful, um, and just just the right um, sort of mix of um, reality, anguish, despair, uh, and hopeful vision. So um, good night. Uh, thank you, Nahum. I, I appreciate your time and the work that you're doing. And I sort of, you know, I'm, I'm going to be looking for, for our community <laughs> to see if we can gather some people together and bring you to Minneapolis. Uh, we just promise not to bring you during, during winter, uh, because <laughs> no, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that to I you. Appreciate <laughs> time together I, I very much enjoyed our conversation well so did i and uh blessings to you and to your work this week and to your bait midrash and to whatever happens with this beautiful book uh i i hope uh, that many many people pick it up and experience lots of vision and hope from it thank you steve Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook. Uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together. <laughs>